the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. SRN News. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Notice the words that follow, but God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God was moved to act and to do something for us because, Paul says, of his mercy, which Paul says he's rich in, meaning that that his mercy, God's mercy, is boundless. It has no limits. It can't be measured. But God... That really is the good news, isn't it? Hello there, this is Verse by Verse. I am glad you tuned in today for another chapter in our study of God's power in salvation. Our text is Ephesians chapter 2, and our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul does a magnificent job of clearly explaining our desperate need for a Savior and God's immeasurable love and mercy in providing exactly what we need. So far, our study has been a little grim as we've considered the hopeless state in which we all lived prior to trusting in Christ. Paul said we were dead in our trespasses and children of God's wrath, incapable of coming to God on our own. I said a moment ago that I'm glad you tuned in. That's always true, but I'm extra glad today because now we come at last to those two wonderful words, maybe the most important words in the Bible, but God. Let's get going now with our study. Here's Pastor Steve. As we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we have come to one of the most important passages in the entire Word of God. In fact, the first two words of this section are two of the most wonderful words you will ever find in the Bible. Because without the truth that these two words convey, we would all be miserable, we would all be hopeless, we would all be in a sad state. Passage I'm referring to, and I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read to you verses 4 through 10. We're just going to study a little bit tonight. This is such a rich passage. It's going to take a while. It's connected to the passage that we have been studying, but you'll see what I mean as soon as we get into this. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one 
may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, the two words that introduce this passage, but God, are the words I'm referring to. They're so significant, they have two functions. Number one, they serve as a connection to what Paul has been talking about, what he's been saying prior to this. Secondly, they serve as a contrast to what he's been saying. They connect us back, but they are a contrast. So let me explain why this is so important to know. As you'll recall from our previous studies, and you'll have to think back a ways, Paul opened Ephesians chapter 2 by giving us a description of man's spiritual condition in his natural state, his unregenerate state, his state without a relationship with Christ, the condition that we were all born with and born into, Paul said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, in these verses, Paul has painted a picture of all of us, all of us, as helpless and hopeless before God. Because he's told us that we were spiritually dead. That's the key to all of this. We were dead. We had no interest in God. We had no love for God. We had no consideration for the word of God, how he wanted us to live. And the proof of all of this is the way that we did live. Paul says we lived by the standards of the world. We carried on our lives by the standards of the world, meaning that we believed and we did and we acted and we thought the way our culture told us to, the dictates of our culture. That's what Paul refers to as the course of this world. Whatever society said, as a general rule, we believed it. We just went along with everybody. If morality changed, we changed. If integrity changed, we changed. All all of that. We agreed with the morality, the sinful attitudes, the actions, the rebellion, the values, on and on it goes, of our world. So we essentially let the world think for us and set the standards that we embraced and said these are acceptable. That's the course of this world. Paul said we thought that way. We carried ourselves that way. We lived out our lives that way. And it was all sinful thinking, all sinful standards, all sinful behavior, sinful attitudes. And the reason for this is behind the course of this world, Paul says, is the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan himself. He's the one who opposes God, and he hates everything God loves, and he loves everything God hates, and Satan is the God of this world, and somehow, in some mysterious way, which nobody really can understand, Satan influences, and he persuades the movers and shakers of our world to embrace his agenda for society. And so, in acting like the devil wanted us to act, we became what Paul calls sons of disobedience. Sons meaning a generic way of saying all of us. We were children of disobedience, which is to say that by embracing in our hearts, in our spirits, this satanic anti-God view of life, we became totally, completely disobedient to God. 
sons of disobedience. And in our disobedience, Paul says, we lived out our lives in what he calls the lust of our flesh. That is to say that what we desired stemmed from our fallen natures. He's using flesh here in that sense, our sinful, fallen natures that we're all opposed to God. And so what Paul wants us to understand is that the reason for our sinful behavior wasn't because the world said, this is how you behave. It wasn't because Satan was controlling the standards of the world. That's only part of it. It wasn't that it was simply outside forces influencing us. We behaved the way we did because the lusts of our corrupted natures, our flesh, pure, selfish sinfulness said yes to what the culture said. Yes to what Satan said. We wanted it. It wasn't forced upon us. We desired these things. We did whatever we thought would make us feel good or advance our cause. So what Paul wants us to understand is that we were the problem. We were the problem. This is how we all lived in total disobedience to God because our corrupt natures were all about self-centeredness, the total promotion of ourselves. Now, that's a bleak picture. That's a dismal picture of man. Why has the apostle gone to such lengths to tell us how bad and disobedient we we all were? After all, in our world today, this is not what people want to hear. This is not a seeker-sensitive message. Paul is just negative here. He's pessimistic at this point, but he's speaking the truth. And that's what the Bible is about. This is exactly the truth, and this is exactly what we need to hear Listen very closely. Paul wants us to see that at one time we were without hope, without ever being in a right relationship with God. We had no hope for that in and of ourselves because we were dead men walking in the ways of the world under the domination of Satan and his demons, living in total disobedience to God under the control of our strong and selfish desires that were all in opposition to God. That's what we were. And the reason Paul has gone to such lengths to tell us this is because he is explaining to us that the only way to account for our salvation right now is that God has done something. He has intervened in our lives. By his power, the Lord has brought us out of these spiritual graves by giving life to us. It's his life, and he's raised us from the dead. See, going back, to chapter 1. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you'll see that Paul tells the Ephesians that he's praying for them. And he's praying for them to understand the various profound truths that he, he's just taught them about God's role in saving us. Truths like what? Election, predestination, redemption. Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This just connects everything. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing, and note this especially, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. The apostle Paul wants us to know, as he wanted the Ephesians to know, that he is praying for them, that they will comprehend something, and we will comprehend something of the greatness of God's power towards us in salvation. 
And he goes on to illustrate what he's talking about. He illustrates this power by speaking of the Father's might, his strength, in raising Jesus from the dead. That's why he says in verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But what God did with the Lord Jesus Christ in using his power to raise him physically from the dead, Paul wants us to know that the Lord has done the same thing with us in raising us spiritually from the dead. So having taken the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 to explain the depth of man's sin problem, Paul moves on now to begin to explain God's provision for man in light of his sin problem. Verse 4 again, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, as I said earlier, the words, but God, are highly significant because they tell us that God has done something for us. He hasn't left us in that helpless dead state. He's intervened in our lives, and therefore our hopeless situation has been completely changed. But God. In fact, these words, but God, are so meaningful that one Bible teacher said of them that in and of themselves, in a sense, he said, they contain the whole gospel. In fact, I would say that if the Bible stopped right here, if Ephesians chapter 2 stopped at verse 3, we would all be in big trouble. But God did something. This same Bible teacher went on to say this. The gospel tells us of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God, which the apostle goes on to describe and to define in the following verses. So what is it that God has done for us? But God But God did something. What has he done for us? Well, before the apostle tells us specifically what he's done for us, I want you to know he tells us why God has done what he has done. Notice the words that follow, but God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God was moved to act and to do something for us Because, Paul says, of his mercy, which Paul says he's rich in, meaning that that his mercy, God's mercy is boundless. It has no limits. It can't be measured. This is a stupendous truth. This is a remarkable truth because mercy is just God withholding from us what we deserve. That's what God's mercy is. It is his astoundingly kind ways of withholding from us what we deserve. And what we deserve is judgment and wrath and hell itself. But God, being rich in mercy, has withheld that from us. And how do we know that we deserve God's wrath? If you tell an unbeliever this, he'll argue with you. But how do we know that we deserve God's wrath? Because we were dead sinners. An unbeliever doesn't see that, the proof that he's a dead sinner. We were dead sinners. We walked according to the lusts of our flesh. We were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Of course we deserve judgment. Anybody who doesn't see that is blind because they are dead in their sins. 
That's the whole point that Paul is making. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 1, you get a better feel for what the apostle is actually saying and the contrast that he's making. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, he starts off, and you, and then he explains us, then he starts off verse 4, but God. And you were like this, but God. You were this way, but God being rich in mercy chose not to punish you and give you what you deserve. That's the essence of thought here, folks. But why did God choose to be so merciful to us? Paul says that God's mercy is founded. It's founded in and flows out of his great love for us. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God has shown pity on us by not leaving us in our dead state and judging us for our evil rebellion. And he's done this, why? Because Paul says he has great love for us. Now think about how amazing this truth is. God knows exactly what you're like. God knows what you are like. He knows what all of us are like, what I'm like, wretched sinners who did nothing in our unsaved state but disobey him. And what we didn't do outwardly, we certainly did inwardly with evil and wicked desires. And yet knowing all of this about us, God loves us. And his love, Paul says, is great towards us. That's a truth that we ought not to take for granted. If you've grown up in an evangelical Christian home hearing that God loves you, it's very easy to be very familiar with that and not impact you. But but I didn't grow up like that. And I can recall the very first time that I realized that God actually loved me and that his love for me was not dependent on me doing anything. It was unconditional. This was the time the Lord was opening my my heart, my eyes to the gospel. And I remember just being overwhelmed at this thought and just crying because I had never heard anything like this, that God would would love me. So how do we define this love? How do we explain it? This great love that God has for us, it actually defies total explanation. God is love. This is who he is. But William Hendrickson, who was a brilliant theologian, he wrote this about God's love, and I thought it would be good for us to hear. He said, the love of God is so great that it defies all definition. We can speak of it as his intense concern for, his deep personal interest in us, his warm attachment to, and spontaneous tenderness toward his chosen ones. But all that is but to stammer. Those and those only who experience it are the ones who know what it is, though even they can never fully comprehend it. I suspect that for all of eternity, we will still never fully, fully comprehend God's love for us. We'll be astounded. We'll be amazed. We'll be praising him for it, but I don't think we'll ever fully grasp it. So we may not be able to define it. We may not be able to comprehend it, but we certainly know what it looks like, don't we? We know what it looks like because God has revealed it to us. The greatest revelation of this, the greatest demonstration of this is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6, the apostle writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. means while we were helpless and dead in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he means dead sinners, Christ died for us. That's the greatest demonstration of God's love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, John says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because of his great love for us, Christ, the sinless son of God, was condemned in our place, bearing the penalty for our sins so that God the Father's justice completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. There's no more that it could be satisfied than it is. And we can experience now, not hell, but a relationship with him, fellowship with him. That's what his great love looks like. See, we don't have to define it. We just look at the cross and we grasp something of it. But in order to have this relationship, something had to happen. Because we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses, uninterested in God, completely disobedient to him, and even hostile towards him. So yes, Christ died for us, but how do we connect? How does that connection, he elected us in eternity past, he died for us over 2,000 years ago, but how do we actually apply this? How does it become a reality in our lives? What did God do for us in his mercy and love to make this experiential? Look at verses 5 and 6. We're only going to touch on this. It's so rich that I, I want to stop in a, in a few minutes and address some things, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. But look at this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says that when we were dead... In our transgressions, God, because he loved us, did this. He made us alive. That's what he did. That's what the but God is about. He made us alive, meaning that he imparted life to us. Think about that. You were dead. What does a dead man need? Well, he needs life. This is the doctrine known as regeneration. In its more popular form, it's called being born again. It's exactly the same thing. To be born again is to have the life of God supernaturally by God himself implanted in us. It is to have what Peter says, a divine nature, a a new nature given to us by God so that whereas once I was dead and totally disinterested in God, now I'm alive unto him and I am passionately interested in him. The term born again seems to have popped up within the last 50 or 60 years, but it's actually a term that Jesus used in John 3 to explain to a Pharisee named Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Without God's intervention in giving us spiritual life, it's impossible for us to see spiritual truth and make that decision to repent of our unbelief and rebellion. That's because, as Paul said, we are dead in our sins. The good news is that God makes us alive together with Christ. 
This is Verse by Verse. Thanks for listening today as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues our series of Bible lessons from Chapter 2 of Ephesians. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, a position he's held since 1981. You can find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. Something near and dear to Pastor Steve is ministry to the blind. So we'd like to let you know about a special opportunity for those who have need of an audio Bible. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and you'd like a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit www.blindbibles.com. That's 800-838-5924 or blindbibles.com. If you missed part of today's program or want to catch up on previous ones, check out our website, versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. R.C. Sproul said, A dead man cannot cooperate with his resurrection. Lazarus did not cooperate in his resurrection. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God in which man plays no role. After God brings us to life, of course, we certainly are involved in cooperating with Him. We are to believe, trust, obey, and work for Him. But unless God acts first, we will never be reborn in the first place. We must also realize it is not as if dead people have faith, and because of their faith, God agrees to regenerate them. Rather, it is because God has regenerated us and given us new life that we have faith. This is Jerry Peterson inviting you to join us next time on Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff shares more about why it's necessary for God to regenerate us. Encouraging you in Christ. Every other religion said, listen, you've got to be good enough, work enough, sweat enough. Christianity says you don't have to do any of that. You come to me. It is my life lived through you. Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTBN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.